everyone. Welcome to Sundays with Saima. This podcast is made for aspiring otolaryngologists to learn from trainees and professionals in the field. I'm your host, Saima Wase, fourth year medical student at Northeast Ohio Medical University. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Deepa Galea, assistant professor of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and practicing otologist, neurotologist, and lateral skull-based surgeon at Johns Hopkins University. She earned her medical degree from Stanford University School of Medicine. She then went on to complete her residency at Massachusetts Ear and Eye Infirmary, followed by a fellowship in neurotology and lateral skull-based surgery at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Galea, thank you so much for joining me. I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you, Saima, for inviting me. I really appreciate the invitation and the um, opportunity to get to talk to you. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. So to start out, can you tell us a little bit about your path to otolaryngology? Sure. Um, So when I started medical school, I really had no idea what I was going to do. I thought that I would be uh, primarily research-oriented and doing something in the neurosciences. Um, In my first year, I fell in love with anatomy. I thought it was really my favorite class um, above all else. Uh, Really liked doing all of the dissections and looking at the relationships between different structures and how, how they function um, ended up becoming a TA for anatomy the following year. And that's that's when I really started to think that maybe a surgical or a procedural specialty would be a good fit for me. To be honest, though, I liked everything in medical school. I was, mm-hmm. um, it, it was really one of the best times of my life. I think uh, it's, a, it's a great time to just explore everything in medicine, um, get to experience what it is to take p- care of patients in every different uh, setting, specialty. Um, and so I did have a very hard time choosing what I wanted to do. Um, between my second and third year, I did a research year with uh, Dr. Stefan Peller at Stanford University. And so he works primarily um, on uh, stem cell research for the inner ear. So um, inner mm-hmm. ear Uh, inner ear hair cell regeneration is his primary focus. Mm -hmm. Um, I was very interested in stem cell research at the time. It's why I selected his lab. But um, in being that in that lab, I ended up meeting a lot of otolaryngology surgeons um, who convinced me that this was a great field to take a look at in that it combined, you know, big procedures and little procedures, um, uh, taking care of kids to adults, um, not really having a good medical counterpart. So Mm -hmm. you get to do, um, a lot of, uh, the medical management as well. Um, and so in speaking to a lot of those practitioners, I thought this would be a great field to check out. I did my sub I, um, and ended up really falling in love with the field. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a great option for students who have broad interests because it does, as you mentioned, have that broad scope. So um, you went to residency and you became interested in in otology and neurotology. Um, Where did that interest stem from? Um, I came into residency already a little bit interested in otology, neurotology, I think because of my background working in Dr. Heller's lab. Mm. Um, But I was very open-minded in residency. And one of the things I would certainly recommend is to go to a place where um, you get broad exposure to everything and have, um, you know, a lot of uh, uh, influential mentors in every subspecialty so that you can get um, a good 
good sense of what it is you really want to do. So I stayed pretty open-minded. I was attracted to pediatric otolaryngology um, initially because I thought it was a way that I could do everything just in, in children. Um, but it was on my otology rotation that I became convinced that otology and otology was probably the right path for me. Um, I had one particular mentor, Daniel Lee, who uh, always talked about how um, really how challenging and how the surgery is in the ear and how mm-hmm. beautiful that surgery is um, and how he selected it because it was really some of the, the hardest procedures he had ever done in, in otolaryngology. Um, and the anatomy of the ear is really beautiful and intricate and incredibly small. And then there's still so many things physiologically and scientifically that we don't understand about how hearing works. You mentioned the new face of otology and neurotology and the things that we don't know about the anatomy and the physiology, what other parts of the field excite you in terms of research innovation? Yeah. um, So one of the like most basic things about the ear that we don't really understand is how conductive hearing actually works. Um, So we can, we, we have identified the mechanisms by which you get air conduction, where you, where you get vibration of the tympanic membrane, vibration of the middle ear bones, and that leads to vibration of the round window um, and oval window with a fluid shift inside the cochlea and movement of the basilar membrane. So all of that makes sense. Like you can really visualize how a, a field of air can move the tympanic membrane and lead to that series of events. Um, when it comes to conductive hearing, which you would think is a pretty basic physiologic mechanism, we don't actually understand how that works. We don't know how, um, you know, how a vibration in the skull or a vibration elsewhere in the body can get transmitted to the ear in that way. Is it vibrating the ossicles? Is it vibrating the tympanic membrane? It doesn't it seem to be doing that, working with that same mechanism. So we don't know what that uh, conduction mechanism is into the cochlea. That's like one very basic um piece of physiology that we haven't figured out yet, which I find really fascinating. Um, the things that I'm really interested in mm-hmm. are um, the, the use of, of um, robotic surgery to help, help us make more minimally invasive um, approaches to the ear and improvements in image navigation for the lateral skull base. So I'm, I'm very excited about some of the work um, that several colleagues are doing in the field, looking at how we can more minimally invasively insert a cochlear implant um, or more precisely insert a cochlear implant into the um, scale of tympani, getting it into the right compartment, seeing if we can actually improve outcomes in um, hearing and speech recognition just by the way that we actually insert the implant and do the surgery itself. So I, I find that that's, that's exciting if we can find uh, ways that are better than just using the human hand to insert a cochlear implant. We might be able to make some big, big leaps and, and bounce forward in the field of hearing rehabilitation. Yeah, it seems, yeah. it seems like the future of AI is very promising in many surgical subspecialties, and it's exciting to hear the application that it'll have in otology and neurotology with your uh, research in that. So, yeah, that's great. What do you see the role of teaching and mentorship in your career today? Mm -hmm. I think um, 
obviously I, I am where I am because of uh, the influence of several mentors I've had in the past um, and some excellent clinicians that dedicated their time and energy to teaching their craft to the next generation. And so I really owe where I am to um, the time and effort that people before me put into getting me to this spot. I do think in the world of surgery, there is a lot of room for innovation in education and uh, improvement in education, maybe incorporation of different methods in adult pedagogy to um, improve the way we do education. So surgical education is under a lot of different pressures in that we have a limited amount of time um, and we are expected to learn a very wide variety of techniques to a degree of competency where we can do it independently on our own um, and not only do it independently on our own under normal circumstances, but also be able to innovate uh, and work your way out of uh, a problem you may never have seen mm -hmm. before. And so getting, getting um, residents to that level of competency is a challenging thing, especially when we're looking at situations where more and more um, surgeries are being moved out of the hospital setting into ambulatory surgery centers and where time pressure is a really big, um, big component of, uh, of being able to get your surgeries done. And that, that time pressure can really conflict with the teaching mission of a residency program. Right. And so that is where I think there's a big role for thinking more critically about how we do education so that it's not just see one, do one, teach one, or it's not just observation. And then, you know, the resident tries to do the case on their own, but um, trying to more efficiently impart that uh, skill set to a resident. Um, so seeing if we can break down core surgeries into component parts um, and having a resident do multiple reps of that component part over and over again. Um, and then so that when they're actually in the operating room, they can get through those parts a little bit more quickly, or they can gain those skills a little bit more quickly than they would have otherwise. Um, there's also the role of simulation and helping, helping right. residents, uh, you know, practice really challenging situations or very rare situations that might not occur that frequently um, that are really hard to hard to prepare for if you just mm -hmm. don't see them that that much. And, and then there are also programs where, especially in otology, neurotology, um, there might only be one or two otologists. And so uh, you are maybe only learning from one or two people um, when they're, when they're, and you could be learning from, from many people out there in the field. And so seeing if there are ways where we can um, either make a video library that is uh, accessible to everyone or even a, a virtual simulation that mm -hmm. is accessible to a wide variety of residents. Those might be ways to try to give residents exposure to multiple techniques or multiple different surgeons um, that they might not otherwise have exposure to. Right, right. And it sounds like having experience outside of the OR before actually operating is crucial to your success in the OR. Is that what you believe? I, I think so. I mean, I think this is something I wish I had done more in residency is um, just the idea that you can practice a lot of your skills outside of the operating room, <clears throat> um, maybe outside of the patient care setting. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, and we already do that with things like suturing, like suturing bananas, uh, suturing pig feet. Um, but even when it comes to, to tying knots or manipulating very small instruments, you can make pretty simple simulations at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and practice manipulating very small instruments down a tiny tube, um, practice moving, you know, a bead from one corner of a tube to another corner of a tube with just one motion. Mm. Um, and, and these are all very tiny, fine motor dexterity skills that can be practiced outside of the operating room setting that will just make you better um, when you're actually in the operating room and might not have the time to um, troubleshoot the way that you would want to. Right, right. Yeah, I think that is really helpful, even from a medical student's perspective, to know that you can prepare for, especially times in the AI, on your AI when you may be asked to suture the donor side or something like that, and you can prepare. It's just um, using your resources as best as you can. That's great. Yeah, and I and there are so many videos out there. Also, I mean, I still watch videos to see how other people um, tackle problems, uh, <laughs> and that that is another area that I think we can make a like, huge library of videos to to really supplement the education that people are getting before they go into the operating room. Uh, another area where I think we can um, be a little bit more critical about how we approach education is um, in how we do feedback and debriefing mm-hmm. um, and and trying to make that and and I think this is this is happening uh, in all medical specialties in real time right now mm-hmm. um, but trying to make a structured almost um, rubric or of core competencies that someone should have by the end of a rotation or um, even by the end of a year in residency and using that to to actually structure your feedback so that it's constructive and people know what to do um, and and can make actionable changes um, to get better and better. I think that will help us bypass some of the biases that um, are unfortunately inherent to how we Mm -hmm. train people now and help us give more concrete feedback so that there isn't as much of a gap between men and women or between underrepresented minorities and the rest and um, their colleagues in terms of the feedback they're getting and their performance metrics. If you have like actual numbers to look at, um, it really improves what you can do um, Mm -hmm. with that feedback and hopefully improves the diversity of the field. Yeah. And I think coming from a perspective where I'm a type A medical student, it's nice to see numbers and just know exactly where you stand. And I think for me, I like to improve based off of the feedback that I have for myself and from other people. So I think that would be an excellent way to kind of improve our own uh, practice and Mm -hmm. not only for medical students, but also for residents. So that's great to hear about. Yeah, that's, I think one piece of advice I would certainly give, um, Mm. Uh, for medical students, residents, all levels of training, and I'm I'm still trying to practice to this day, is it can be hard to hear um, negative feedback, um, mm-hmm. especially if it's if it isn't phrased in a way where it's actually constructive. But I would really encourage you to lean into the experience of getting that kind of feedback and lean into your weaknesses. Um, and if there are 
areas where you feel like I, you know, I don't excel in this particular technique, or I really struggle with, um, you know, this type of diagnosis or evaluating a patient in this setting. I think the uh, instinct is to stay away from those things that you don't feel you're good at. Mm-hmm. But to become a better clinician, I strongly recommend leaning into the things that you feel like you're not good at, mm-hmm. and then asking for critical feedback to say, how can I make this better? Um, right. And really perceiving it as uh, an opportunity to grow, rather than, you know, uh, like a negative mark, uh, or a negative evaluation. It's just every opportunity is an opportunity to get better and better. Mm-hmm. And that can be hard to hard to um, keep in mind through training, but I think it's an important point. I know. And some people have this fear of saying, I don't know. And at some point you have to say, I don't know in order to identify your weakness. Right. Right. And there will be a point when you're out there on your own um, and your opportunity to learn the thing you didn't know has already passed you by. And so it's, you know, it is a point of bravery to say, I don't know. Um, and, and I think that's hard when you're, uh, you know, a well, high performing medical student, you've done well your whole life, you've been taking these tests and mm-hmm. every moment seems like an opportunity to say, you know, right. here's what I do know, like, here's how good I am and, and what I can, what I can show, what I can do. Um, but I really encourage you as you go into residency and clinical training uh, to lean into the things you don't know and try to expose to yourself um, your own weaknesses so that you can actually work on them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any other advice that you have for medical students interested in otolaryngology or applying? <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a fantastic field. Um, I'm I'm really happy that you yourself have found the field because I think it's not something that most medical students get much exposure to um, unless they seek it out themselves. But it's a it's a great a great field to learn a wide variety of um, surgical techniques. You could do big open surgery. You can do really obviously minimally invasive, very tiny surgery on the smallest bones of the body. Treat children to adults have. Uh, you know, patients who are very sick, patients who are coming in for things that really affect their lifestyle, but are not necessarily um, going to put them in the hospital. Uh, So you get a little bit of everything, which I think is really, really quite nice. And it's a really nice group of people. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, and there's a great emphasis on technology. So if you're interested at all in new technologies, and um, bioengineering, if that's at all your background, it's a really excellent specialty for pursuing those, those kinds of interests. Great. I think uh, we learned a great deal about um, otolaryngology today from a different perspective from Dr. Galea. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your path, your interests in the research that are emerging in otology, neurotology, and lateral skull-based surgery, and kind of giving us some of your background and knowledge and feedback and how to incorporate that into daily life. All right. Thank you so much, Saima, for inviting me. I really appreciate getting the chance to talk to you. Absolutely. So today we heard from Dr. Galea. Thank you all for joining and sticking around till the end of this episode. Catch us on the next episode of Sundays with Saima next Sunday.